Didn't. When's the deacons meeting this month? The fourteenth. Okay. Okay, that's what I thought, and I thought I'd put it in, but that's my technology skills. Okay, uh, I think the only announcement we have is that we have deacons meeting, which means men's prayer breakfast on the fourteenth uh, of January. Men's prayer breakfast is at 7.30. The deacons meeting follows at 9. Then um, we have our annual congregational meeting on February the Sunday, February the 5th. So make sure you have that those two events on your calendar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, which is our uh, normal procedure, just to remind everybody how important it is to walk by the Spirit, that that is the um, basic MO of the spiritual life. The power of the spiritual life for the church-age believer is his walk by the Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit works in and through the study of God's Word and our application and volition to uh, produce fruit or character transformation in each one of us. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer because Scripture teaches that if we are walking according to the flesh, then we're just producing wood, hay, and straw. And only when we're walking by the Spirit does the Spirit produce gold, silver, and precious stones. So if we are going to worship the Lord uh, by means of the Spirit, then we have to make sure we're in fellowship by using 1 John 1, nine. So we'll bow our heads together, and after a few moments, uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the many ways in which you provide for us and that you have supplied the needs of this congregation. Father, we are also reminded that there are many folks in this congregation that are facing uh, serious uh, physical maladies, some of which keep them from ever getting out or attending church anymore. We're thankful for them. We're thankful for their testimony. We're thankful for the way you continue to work in our lives, even when we reach that stage in life when we're no longer able to get out. Father, we're thankful for many in this congregation who are uh, tremendously positive, both in terms of the study of your word and application, and who endeavor to uh, reach out into the culture to communicate the gospel, to challenge others. And we pray that we all would be more sensitive to that as we uh, come in our study week after week, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand all the things we study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in First. 
Peter chapter 3, and tonight we're going to look at verse 6. Up to this point, we have been focusing, because the first five verses of 1 Peter 3 deal with the uh, <clears throat> deal with the wives and their relationship to husbands, and now in one verse, uh, Peter is going to talk about the husband's responsibility. Paul has a lot more to say about the husband's, and one of the fascinating things about actually both passages is the correlation that uh, both writers bring out between the marriage and the uh, analog to Jesus Christ in his relation to, relationship uh, to the church. So tonight we're going to look at verse 6, and we're going to look at husbands. Now, just to remind you a little bit about the context. In the context, we have to go back to verse 17. Verse 17, we have this verse, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And those four words that I have underlined there in the original are all in the imperative mood. Those are all commands. And it's really interesting the way Peter has this laid out because uh, what we see following this in main statements uh, related to servants, related to wives, related to husbands are commands that they're, they're translated as commands, but they're actually not commands. The question that should come in any of our minds whenever we read a command in Scripture is the question, well, how do I do that? How do I go about transforming my mind? How do I go about changing my behavior? How do I go about living the Christian life? And so the question is, how do we implement these four commands? How exactly are we to honor all people? How exactly are we to love the brotherhood? How exactly are to we, we to fear God, and how exactly are we to honor the king? Now, notice in this uh, opening uh, command, which comes at the end of a paragraph, back in verse 17, we have the word honor used twice. In the Greek, it's the word teme, which means to respect, uh, to honor, to give uh, obedience to somebody to recognize their authority and and uh, well in this these cases or in the case of the king to recognize his authority and honoring all people that just showing respect and reverence I got a real kick this morning out of a Facebook comment on one of my one of my posts that I had made a while back and it was a political comment. And uh, some of you probably saw it or may have may know the person who made it, but I'm not going to mention any names, because what she wrote clearly reflects an attitude that many Christians have. And she said, uh, in relation to uh, dealing with those who are in strong political disagreement with her. Uh, that sometimes it's very difficult to remember that because they are also created in the image and likeness of God that we need to treat them with respect no matter how idiotic and stupid their their political positions are. And that's true in any area of disagreement. We have to remember that the person with whom we are having the disagreement 
is a person who's created in the image of likeness of God, and we have no idea that down the road we might have an opportunity to be a witness to them and the fact that we don't treat them with respect as someone created in the image of likeness of God may seriously hinder our ability in the future to be an effective witness to them. That's about as convicting as we're going to get this morning. So we have to come to grips with understanding what it means to honor all people. Subset of that would be, of course, honoring the king. Now, in the structure that's laid out in in the following verses, we have three basic commands that, that are translated as commands, and they, but in the Greek, they're not imperatives, they're participles. And a participle is, can be used as a noun, or it can be used to modify a verb. The verb in this case are those imperatives back in verse 17, and the participles are answering the question, how do I honor all people? How do I love the brotherhood? And Peter is taking it and applying it into the framework of the home, the most basic unit in society, marriage and family, the second and third divine institutions. How do we take these broad principles and apply them right where we live day in and day out, especially in circumstances that may not be pleasant? When a servant is having to deal with a master who is harsh and unjust, or a wife is in the situation where the husband is an unbeliever and he may be harsh and unjust, or the husband may be married to a wife who is not a believer and she may even not be in full accord with his Christianity. And so how do you implement this at that time? So in each of these areas within the home, Peter provides uh, direction. How do we honor all people, love the brotherhood, and honor the king? First of all, he says servants, and that you'll see the way that I've translated this this participle is as a, as a um, participle of means, that the servant is to implement these imperatives by being submissive to your masters. That's the sense of this participle. It would be called a participle of means grammatically. And then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, wives likewise, same form of the word. It's a participle. It's not a direct imperative, though it has that sense because it's modifying a main idea back in verse chapter 2, verse 17. Um, that should be 2.18 there where it says servants by being submissive to your masters. That should, that's a typo. That should be 2.18. First Peter 3.1, wives likewise by being submissive to your husbands. And then in 3.8, husbands likewise by dwelling with them in with understanding. Because And the, the likewise there has to do with that sense, that, that participial uh, nuance of means. It's not because the husband isn't submitting like the wife or the servant, but it is he, what the likewise, that word that is being used there is showing that these three things are all tied together as answering that question, that, that those commands in verse 17 of how you do that. So verse 7, where we are tonight, husbands, Likewise, by dwelling with them with understanding. That's how a husband is to 
honor and show respect to his wife. He is not to lord his authority over his wife. Jesus teaches about how we're not to exercise our authority as believers uh, like the Gentiles do by lording it over others, by taking advantage of it and not not living with someone in grace. So the verse reads, Husband like, Husbands, likewise, by dwelling with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So the passage is now addressed to husbands. And the word that's used here in the Greek simply is the same word that is used for husbands in other contexts. It can refer just to males, but in contexts where you're dealing with the home uh, home life and you're dealing with, with obviously husbands and wives, it has the sense of husbands. And it shows that, that uh, Peter is addressing husbands as a class, and he's not making a distinction between those who are married to unbelievers and those who are married to uh, to believers. And as I pointed out last time when we were looking at, at wives, that one of the issues in the home in, a Greco, in the Greco-Roman culture was that if the husband had a religion, then it was expected that the wife would have the same religion, the children would have the same religion, everybody would be uh, on board together. And so this would be a situation perhaps where a husband was a believer, and it doesn't necessarily mean that his wife was a believer. So it could be a situation where the believing husband is married to an unbelieving wife, or it could be that he's married to a carnal uh, believer or to a believer that is growing. But the, but the wife's spiritual status is not the basis for the husband's responsibility to demonstrate love toward his wife. Now, if we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture, we always have to be somewhat careful about comparing Scripture with Scripture because you know that uh, over in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talked about beating his body into submission. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, he talked about loving your wife like you love your own body. You can put that together and come up with the wrong conclusion. So you have to be careful where it's legitimate and not legitimate to uh, put Scripture together. And what we see here in verse 7 of Peter is that Peter is telling or giving an, an example of how the husband is to love his wife. Now, he doesn't use the term. But he, used, he uses a description here of how the husband lives with his wife, and he is depicting what that love is. Now, Paul is more precise when he addresses the role of the husband in Ephesians 5.25. So I want to turn there, and you might want to keep your place here in 1 Peter chapter 3, and then we'll come back to it, to talk about this, this critical passage in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, this is really the uh, foundation for understanding roles within the household. And that includes servants, it includes children, uh, includes the roles and responsibilities uh, of, of the parents. Uh, children don't get addressed until you get down to verse 1. And I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse verse as we go through this. I'm just going to hit some of the high points so that you understand what is going on here. First of all, 
The, the command is addressed specifically to husbands, and they are commanded to love your wife. That's the agapao, that's the verb on the left. Notice in both places, love your wives and as Christ loved the church, we have the same verb, the Greek verb agapao. Now, there are three different verbs that are used uh, primarily for love in the New Testament. There's uh, uh, agapao, there's phileo, and there is one use of a compound word with storge, which is related to a mother's mother's love. Storge is related to where we get our word for a stork and how a stork hovers over the young in the nest. And if you've ever been to Greece or that part of the world, one of the first things we noticed when we went a number of years ago is that on the top of almost every telephone pole is an enormous stork's nest. So anybody who talked about storks in in relation to mother's love, you understand why that verb uh, entered into the Greek language is it's they were present uh, everywhere. Everybody understood that. But agapao and phileo are two different words that are sometimes um, misunderstood. So the command here the, is a present imperative, and a present imperative always emphasizes the standard operating procedure. An aorist imperative, which is a past tense, but it doesn't have a past meaning in, um, in an imperative mood, emphasizes something. It's, it's more of a staccato. It's more of a, a, a right now uh, priority, whereas... Uh, agapao, I mean, a present imperative is over time, and it's a standard operating procedure. Husbands are to love your wives. This is what is to characterize a husband, not just during the first year, the first six months, the first, uh, the beginning of the marriage, but over the course of the 50, 60, 75 years that a couple may be together. But when we ask the question, well, how are we to love our wives, then Paul gives us an example, and it's not an easy example to follow. It's the example of Christ loving the church. That's a standard. So the model for this kind of love, uh, and the same verb is used for loving one another. So when Jesus concludes his time with his disciples in the upper room before they head out and go head towards Golgotha, I mean heads towards uh, the Valley of Gethsemane, uh, Jesus said, uh, I give you this new command that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. So the mark of the believer is to love one another. So in one sense, the husband isn't being told to do something that we're not all told to do. He is, but it is being specifically hammered by Paul because this is an, something that men can forget uh, easily, that they are to love their wife. And the pattern is, as Christ loved the church. So the command there is to love your wife. And I want to uh, give you a couple of uh, points talking about the different kinds of love in the New Testament, specifically between agape love, that's the noun form of agapao is agape, and philos love, which is the noun form of phileo love. First of all, agape love incorporates both categories that we normally discuss. We normally talk about uh, unconditional love or impersonal love, and then we talk about personal love. But agapao is manifested in both areas. 
It is a broad term for love. So if you're going to draw a Venn diagram, then that's the broad circle, and then uh, philos is a subset. It would be a smaller circle within the overall circle of, of agape love. Philos love has the characteristics of being a more personal, intimate love. So agape love incorporates both aspects of impersonal love or unconditional love as well as personal love. Second point is that agape is the word that God uses to describe his love for all mankind. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this manner. He, that's believer and unbeliever alike, those who are positive to God, those who are hostile to God. And then we have passages like, like uh, Romans, Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his love toward us. So that love represents divine love. When you get over into that much-abused passage in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice, let, let him uh, invite me in, and I'll come in and sup with him. Okay? And so a lot of people use that for evangelism. There's one little exegetical problem. In the previous verse, the Lord is addressing that church, and he says that he loves them, and it's philos. He uses, I, I can't remember whether he uses the noun or the verb, probably the verb phileo. He loves them. Well, phileo is only used of God's love for believers. It's never, God does not have philos love for unbelievers. He does not have an intimate love with unbelievers, only with believers. So the difference between agape and philos is level of intimacy. So agape is used of God's love towards all, believer and unbeliever alike. Third point, philos is a more intimate word including both again it includes both dimensions but it emphasizes the difference is the level of intimacy and then fourth what we see in marriage is the kind of love that is going to make a marriage successful is agape love it is a love that is based not on uh, circumstances or individual character but ultimately based upon the character uh, the character of God. Now, this is the the pattern that is given for the husband's love for the wife is Christ's love for the church. And it is exhibited by his death on the cross. He loved, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So there is an act of giving, but is an act of sacrifice. So the first thing we ought to note about this is that this death occurred, the death of Christ occurred while those who were to be saved and who were yet to be in the church were not yet saved and were for the most part viewed as in open rebellion uh, against God. That's Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When the text says, secondly, when the text says giving himself up for her, that indicates a sacrificial love. Jesus 
in his humanity, the night before he went to the cross, prayed to the Father to let this cup pass from him, let this death pass from him. In his humanity, he did not want to go through that, that he wasn't sinning. He He's expressing the horrors of the cross, and he concluded his prayer by saying, nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. He does not go against the Father's will, even in his thinking. He is expressing, though, the horrors of going to the cross. That's a sacrifice is not is a misunderstood term by some people. Sacrifice may or not be something you you feel. A mother who throws herself uh, in a position of danger to save a child doesn't give it any thought. It is an act of sacrifice, but it's not an act where she thinks, oh, I'm going to give up everything. She is doing it willingly for her children. So a sacrificial love is not necessarily a love that focuses on somebody giving something up, but that indeed is what they're doing. Uh, the, the son gave up his prerogatives as God to limit himself by taking on humanity to go to the cross and die for our sins. He never had this sense of, uh, oh, I gave everything up so that I could come and die for everybody. That's a human attitude that comes out of sin. But it, it, the, the obje- objective truth of it is that the son uh, relinquished uh, position and y- willingly gave up uh, the use of his attributes, uh, as we studied in Philippians 2, 5 through 12 not long ago. And so that's the essence of sacrifice. It is, you don't even think about it. You're just putting the other person first because you want what's best for them. That's what love is. And we're not only to exercise love toward our wives, men, but we're to exercise that kind of love toward uh, toward everyone. So we are, um, in in the sense of comparing it with God's love, uh, God, of course, wants the highest and the best for us. That's the best definition I've been able to come across for love, So uh, to want the highest and best for people. And our best interest as far as God's, Concerned, never clash with God's own desires because he is love. So there's never a self-centered aspect of his, of his nature. So what we see is that husbands need to meditate on the love Christ had for the church to die for the church in order that they can come to understand more and more how they are to love their wife. Uh, that's something you can spend time thinking about and um, its implications for loving your, sp- your, your wife. This is further developed in Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. See, between 23 and 28, Paul actually has a bit of a digression as he talks about Christ being the head of the church. He says in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. That is a term for uh, being an authority. Uh, for the husband is the authority over the wife, as also Christ is the authority over the church. So husbands are under an authority. They're under the authority of Christ and under the authority of the Word of God. And Christ is the Savior of the body. Verse 24, therefore, just as the church 
is subject to Christ. See, if you're a believer, you're under a command to submit to Christ, submit to the Word, just as the church is the subject, is to, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So it connects that back to, to, uh, to wives. So husbands and wives are to mirror the relationship between the church and Christ. Now that's really interesting because what the, the, the text indicates there is that the marriage of two Christians is to be an example in this world of the something unseen, which is the relationship between the church and Christ. Part of the problem today is that most people don't understand the nature of the church. They don't understand the relationship of the church to Christ, so they don't understand how their marriage is to be a mirror of that. So everything breaks down because we live in a culture that's become so narcissistic which is not unique to this generation, by the way. That's the basic orientation of the sin nature. But when there is that, this self-centeredness and narcissism that is present, then you cannot understand. I mean, the husband and the wife can't understand, uh, because they're so self-absorbed, how their marriage is to reflect the relationship of Christ to the church and how that is to be a testimony to the angels as well as to other human beings, so that everything that's going on in our lives is somehow tied back to the angelic conflict, and it's tied back to our testimony. And the big problem that we all have is our sin nature just keeps getting in the way. So husbands... Verse 25, or to love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for that. And then from 26 on, we have these, um, we have three, uh, I think there's three purpose clauses here. That he might uh, sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So those three verses, excuse me, two verses, 26 and 27, focus on that, what Christ has done for the church. Then when we get to verse 28, Paul says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And there's a lot of things that guys that, that we do in terms of just think about eating. You eat what you want to eat. You come home, you throw open the refrigerator door, you take stuff, you just eat it because it's good for you, it's what you want, you're taking care of your body. But what this is saying is that's natural and normal, but you should think of your wife in that same way. You are to take care of her like you take care of your own body, like you take care of yourself. That she should be first. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, there's also a point in in here that's, that comes out in verse 29. Notice it begins with the word for. For always explains something that's previously stated, or at least when the Greek is gar, it explains the previous statement. And, and Paul gives a universal or nomic statement here. No one ever hated his own flesh. 
That is such a great line. No one ever hated himself. It doesn't matter how many psychological degrees you have and how much you talk about people with low self-esteem and low self-image. The Bible says no one ever hated themselves. You know, people supposedly get a low self-image and low self-esteem. If they really hated themselves, they'd be glad they were ugly or fat or frumpy or had no intelligence or no success. Or You'd be glad you lost your job because you, if you really hated yourself. But the reason you're upset is because you love yourself. You want what's good for yourself. And something is not the way you'd like for it to be. So... Uh, that's just a general principle. No one ever hated his own flesh. That's your starting point in dealing with anybody who is excessively depressed and discouraged and upset about how they're a failure. Is the only, you're not a failure inherently. You're just upset because you really love yourself. Now that we've established the fact that self-love is dominant, let's develop from there. So no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. So the modus operandi, the normal status quo for the for the male and for the female is to nourish and cherish themselves well what you have to do men is to transfer that to your wife and nourish and cherish her and then we have that comparison again just as the lord does the church that's our pattern that's a high standard. The, the wives were to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Nobody gets off scot-free here. The, both patterns are extremely difficult. Now, when we look at both Ephesians um, 5.25 as well as 528 and 29, we must understand that, that the way Scripture is, is talking here is a frontal assault on any kind of self-serving love, any kind of, uh, of me-first love, any kind of self-absorbed love, any kind of love that's mixed with arrogance. In fact, the term self-serving love or self-absorbed love or love mixed with arrogance just, just destroys the whole meaning of love. And we understand that because we have a short passage in Scripture that def- gives us the characteristics of love. Now, this isn't a definition in the strict sense of the term. Love is one of those terms that is very difficult to define. Most people, the best they can do, and in fact, the scripture just gives us illustrations and descriptions of it um, and its characteristics. Love is patient. Love is kind. Notice those are two positive attributes of love that come right first in this list. And then we have various negatives. We define it by what it isn't. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. Bragging is a result of being self-absorbed and self-promoting. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Whenever you're arrogant, whenever you're self-absorbed, there's no place for love in your life. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not me first. Love is not provoked. It's not going to let the other person push their buttons. How do you do that? You have to be focused on the Lord. 
Love is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's not going to keep a little grocery list of all the ways in which the other person didn't live up to the way they thought they ought to, they ought to perform. It's never going to throw that back at them. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth because this kind of love is consistent with integrity. And you can only get this kind of integrity through a, uh, through a relationship with the Lord. And then it concludes, it bears all things. That's it puts up with a lot of stuff. And we all have to do that because we all put up with stuff that our spouse has as part of their sin nature. That's why when I do premarital counseling, I always say you have to really know the other person and understand their sin nature. Can you live with it? If that other person goes carnal, can you put up with it? If they're carnal for 5, 10, 15 years, can you put up with it? If you can't, then you can't. Don't marry them because you can't put up with their sin nature. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now I want to back up just a minute and do a little comparison. What we see as we talk about this is that one of the benefits of marriage that I have noticed, and God probably designed it this way, is that when you put two sinners together in a house, their sin natures are going to create a certain amount of friction. As they are growing together, if they are both positive and they're growing together in the Lord, God is using the, each one in the other's life to teach them humility, to teach them grace orientation, to teach them uh, how to apply doctrine. In other words, your spouse is being used by God to help you grow spiritually. And that's true in any marriage. It is a refining process to help those two individuals grow grow and mature uh, in the Lord. So that's involved. Now, when we look at this description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and following, the first thing that Paul says, of course, he's talking about love. So the first noun is love. He says, love is patient. The Greek word there is makrothemia. Now, where else do you think we find love and patience linked together? Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. There's our word. Makrothemia. Makrothemia is a fruit of the Spirit. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. This kind of love is developed from uh, your spiritual growth. Patience. Long-suffering which means to suffer a long time. Five minutes in an hour and a week or two weeks is not a long time. I've known some people who've had to suffer a long time. That's called patience, endurance. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is kind. This is a verb, Christuo uh, me here, but it the, the noun form, Christetos, is the word that's translated kind a kind in the fruit of the Spirit. So fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Okay, so these two words here are both part of the fruit of the Spirit. 
So this characterizes love. Now, at that point, Paul shifts gears, and everything after that is is negative. We know what love is because it doesn't have certain characteristics. And even though all of these are not mentioned in the works of the flesh in Galatians uh, 5, 18 to 21, several of them are. Love is, uh, you have jealousy and envy and arrogance, all of that are part of the work of the flesh, the sin nature. So what we see in this picture is that the kind of love that God is ta- that Christ was talking about that should be emulated in every believer's life for everybody, and the kind of love that especially should be there for the husband to the wife is a fruit of the Spirit. It is not something that you can just manufacture out of your own goodness and your own character. It's something that needs to be developed through your spiritual life and your your spiritual walk. So the mandate, underlying mandate here for the believer husband is you better be walking by the Spirit. You better be right with the Lord, and you better be putting into practice what the Scripture says and studying the Word, because that's the only way you can develop the kind of love that should characterize your relationship uh, with your wife. Another thing that is not stated here but is inferred, and that is that the husband who's walking by the Spirit, if his wife is positive... If the husband is walking by the Spirit, developing the fruit of the Spirit, then you're going to have a happy, stable home. But if it only, I've always said this in marriage, it takes two people to make a marriage work, but it only takes one person to make it fall apart. If you're married to a spouse that is a carnal believer or an unbeliever, then that person can easily destroy the marriage. But the responsibility of the believer, the believing husband, is to continue to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And Christ loves each one of us in such a way that no matter how flawed we are, no matter how much we sin and rebel against God, his love is always steadfast and always faithful. So that's the, that's the pattern for us. 1 Peter 3, 7 goes on to say, Husbands, likewise, by dwelling with them with understanding. Now, we have to correct the translation here a little bit. The word for understanding is the word gnosis. It's to live according to knowledge. Now, there's a split opinion on this. Uh, there are many who look at this and say, well, this means that the husbands really need to understand his wife. He needs to know his wife. He needs to know a lot about women. And he needs to live according to knowledge. That, that is, I will call that the psychobabble interpretation, that you need to understand women. Throughout the epistles of the New Testament, when you have gnosis emphasized, it's always knowledge of the word. It's the knowledge of scripture. And the, the, the believing husband who is loving his wife needs to dwell with them on the basis of doctrine, 
on the basis of understanding what God's word says. You have to understand, husbands, the doctrine of the sin nature because you've got one and your wife has one. If you have children, they have sin natures too. And you have to understand what the scripture says about them and you have to understand how to deal with them. You have to understand uh, how you are to lead in the home as the husband and how your wife is to uh, carry out her responsibilities uh, within the home and all. But it all boils down to understanding what the word, uh, what the word of God says. Next thing we see, or next thing I want to cover, or just to remind you, you have to understand the problem-solving devices. These spiritual skills, you have to understand confession of sin. I don't know how a marriage can last the first year if you don't understand the doctrine of forgiveness and move on. Personally, each one has to confess their own sin and get right with the Lord, and then they have to be willing to forgive and forget with the other person. So we get that from understanding the doctrine of confession of sin. Then we have to walk by the Spirit and be filled by the Spirit. It's interesting that if you look at the Ephesians passage, that in Ephesians 5.18 we have the command to be filled by the Spirit. This is followed by a list of different things that are consequences of being filled with the Spirit, such as speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing, making melody to, in, uh, in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things, and submitting to one another in the fear of God. At that point, Paul took a break, and then he starts talking about what it means to submit to one another in the fear of God. It's wives being submissive to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, uh, children being obedient to your parents, and, and fathers not exasperating their children, and slaves being obedient to their, to their masters. That's a result of the filling of the Spirit. So if you're going to go anywhere and have any fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit that relates to love, you have to be walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. This exhibits itself through our use of the faith rest drill. We have to learn to trust God that you may not recognize this, but whether you're a wife or a husband, your spouse has a sin nature. And there's sometimes when it may take them a while to deal with characteristics of their sin nature. And so you have to trust God and put it in the Lord's hands. Peter will get back to this in First Peter 5 by saying, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. You have to be grace-oriented. You have to deal with your spouse in grace and in humility. You have to be doctrinally oriented. You have to understand the principles of the Word of God uh, in relation to things I just mentioned, which has to do with with uh, doctrine of sin nature, doctrine of forgiveness, doctrine of love, all of those things. You have to live with a personal sense of destiny, that your marriage today is going to last a while, and it's going to hone and sharpen both of you spiritually because there's something coming, which is the judgment seat of Christ, and that's related to inheritance and rewards. And, oh, my, that's actually mentioned in the passage in First Peter 3, 6. Where are three seven husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life. So we have to develop that long term perspective here that we are heirs of grace. Uh, 
And then, of course, what's built on that is our understanding of our personal love for God, our impersonal and unconditional love for all mankind, and our occupation with Christ. And the result of that is we can have joy and peace and stability in our own souls. And a lot of reasons that you have marital problems and marital breakup is because of a sin nature that runs amok and because it because of a failure to know any spiritual principles there's no tranquility in individual souls so there's no tranquility in the marriage and it only takes one to mess it all up one person can be walking with the lord and if the other one's not then you've got a recipe for disaster so husbands are to dwell with their wives on the basis of knowledge or with knowledge and then giving honor to the wife that is a word that indicates respect, to value your wife, to esteem your wife, to do things to encourage her, to uh, show and reflect your appreciation for all that they do and their contributions to the marriage, constantly seeking to edify your wife, giving honor to the wife. And then we have this funny term, as to the weaker vessel. And when I was a young pastor, actually I was uh, interviewing at the first church. I eventually became the pastor. But the very first time I went down to this church and visited, uh, the wife of one of the deacons said, you know, I just have a problem with this. The Bible seems to be really against women. It calls women weaker vessels. And she had been influenced by a lot of feminism. And we have to understand what this is talking about. It's not talking about women and strength of character or ability as being, um, as being uh, weaker. It's talking about the fact that in many social situations, they don't have the same position as men, not always. There are differences. But physically, they are very different from men. Aside from the obvious differences that there exist between the two sexes. Of course, we have some people in our culture who just refuse to believe that. And yesterday, our president, in a speech to the uh, armed forces on the occasion of the uh, armed forces full honor review farewell ceremony, as he's giving his last speech, made the statement Joe Biden, I know that women are at least as strong as men. Hmm. And he was went on to talk about their inclusion in the military and in combat arms. So he's not just talking about strength of character or strength of will. He's clearly, by context, talking about physical strength, which shows that he's irrational and ignorant because we have a lot of differences in terms of, I didn't put a slide up there for that, in terms of these differences. Let me just read a few of these things for you. First of all, it's so obvious that there is a difference in male and female physical capacities and capabilities that we don't even question the fact that men do not compete against women in almost any athletic sport because we understand that there are profound differences let me list some of these uh, men are taller uh, that means they have uh, greater leverage in many things involving physical strength they have uh, overall they have a higher capacity 
for carrying oxygen to, through their body and delivering it to their muscles. Men have longer bones and can develop larger muscles uh, than women. In fact, a study in the Journal of Applied Physiology that came out recently found that men had an average of 26 pounds more skeletal muscle mass than women. Women also exhibited about 40% less upper body strength and 33% less lower body strength on the average, according to the study. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't go out and find some woman, some specific specimen of uh, femininity that can outlift, outrun, and outperform athletically a specific uh, male individual. I see this all the time when I go to CrossFit. Some of those 25 to 35-year-old women are just amazing. I don't think I was ever that strong. Um, but that just because you have the, but you don't ever see this across the board in generally. Otherwise, you'd see men and women competing against each other in Olympic sports and other sports, and that just isn't going to happen. Um, Women's ligaments are generally more fragile than, than males, the male's ligaments. Uh, the women have, because they're shorter, they have a lower and more stable center of gravity, which gives them, gives them greater balance than men. But men have a higher ratio of muscle mass to body weight, which means they can run faster and they can swim faster and they can carry heavier loads. And this is important because what we find in the military is this idea that women can go through special forces training or SEAL training or ranger training. And actually in um, uh, private emails that I have received from those who are involved with, uh, have been involved with uh, ranger training and that we just had two women in the last couple of years who made it through ranger school it was, you know, they fudged on it because the politically correct thing was these women had to get their ranger tabs. But they couldn't do what men can do. And the problem is when you get in a real-life combat situation where you've got some guy who can uh, uh, pick up his uh, uh, his buddy who's been wounded and put him over his shoulder and carry a 250-pound guy off the field, no 125-pound woman is ever going to be able to do that. They cannot function in the same way that men are. Men and women are not interchangeable. And this is the arrogance of, of, of much of our uh, modern understanding of the roles of men and women, and that leaks over and is somewhat destructive to understanding, understanding uh, marriage. Now we come then to the next-to-last phrase here, that husbands are to treat their wives with honor as co-heirs together of the grace of life. Now, when we look at this, and we've talked a lot about inheritance, in fact, this takes us back to the very opening uh, chapter of First Peter, where Peter tells us that we are going to receive an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, that's reserved in heaven for us. And so we studied inheritance. So the question that we need to ask here, because we've talked about two kinds of inheritance, that kind of inheritance that is true for every believer and that which is true for only those who are growing, maturing believers who are called overcomers in Scripture. So we ask the question, what kind of heir do we have here? 
Is this an heir of God, something that we all have in common, or this referring to the second category in Romans 8, uh, 17, the joint heir with Christ? Romans 8, 16, and 17 says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's all believers. We're all children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, the way that is normally punctuated, it looks as if uh, you have two uh, synonymous categories, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But what we see here is this if clause, which can get, provides a condition for inheritance, uh, says, if indeed we suffer with him. Now, if being an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ is something that's true for every believer, then you can't really get to heaven unless you have faith in Christ and you suffer with him. Because that's putting suffering as part of that condition from being an heir of God. So I'm going to give you three principles. We've covered the broader doctrine many times, covered this many times. First of all, in some passages, inheritance is related to rewards, limited to some believers, not for all believers. It's what is earned for our spiritual service, our spiritual growth. Uh, it's different from salvation. Salvation's a free gift, a, a, a free gift, and reward is earned. Colossians 3.24 says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Inheritance is a reward. It's not a free gift. It is done for service. But, point number two, in other passages, our heirship is based on adoption, on sonship. Therefore, inheritance is also related to positional truth, as we see in Galatians 3.29 and Galatians 4.1. But it's really clear in Romans 8.16 and 17. So, the issue is, how do you punctuate it? And that's very important because there's no punctuation in the original Greek. The M dash that we saw in a previous translation I had up here, nor the commas, are all uh, done by English editors based on their theology. So here we have a basic sentence. I've used this many times. A woman without her man is nothing. A woman will usually translate the first line, um, or uh, the man will... uh, uh, yeah, the woman usually translate the first line with two commas. A woman, without her, man is nothing. Emphasizing that man can't do anything unless he has a woman behind him. But in the second line, you will have only one comma. A woman without her man is nothing. That is saying that a woman is nothing unless she has a man. Two different meanings, two opposing meanings, based on where you place the commas. So when we look at Romans 8, 17, we have to take out this second comma. If Christians, heirs also, heirs of God, and put it over here, comma, that's one kind of heirship, an heir of God that's true for every believer. And in addition to being an heir of God, Fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. 
So suffering with Christ is a result of growing and maturing and taking on the, the challenge of being a disciple. We're, con- we're going to suffer in lots of different ways, small ways, big ways, but this shows that, that Romans eight seventeen has two categories of inheritance. And so what we're talking about in this passage is the first kind because it's stated that in verse 7 that this is heirs together of the grace of life. So we, you, two believers are married together. They're heirs of God. They're heirs of life. They're going to have eternal life, and they are to learn to live together uh, and respect each other. And third point, heirship is related to hope. Titus 3, 7, having been justified by his grace that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, the last phrase in the verse is a warning to husbands that if you don't live with your wife according to knowledge, if you don't give honor and respect to your wife, then your prayers will be hindered. The point that he is making is that your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your wife is part and parcel of your spiritual life and your spiritual growth. And so that if you're not obeying the Lord in these areas, then you're just stuck out of fellowship until you start applying doctrine to your marriage. So next time we're going to come back. I'm going to see the wrap up in this as we go towards the end of the chapter. Finally, my brethren, uh, excuse me, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. That sounds very similar to things that Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through through 4. Be of one mind, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. See, that's joint heirship with Christ blessing inheritance takes us right back to first Peter 2:17 honor all people love the brotherhood fear God honor the king that's how you do it you do it by if you're a slave by submitting to your master if you're a wife by submitting to your husband if you are a husband by dwelling with your wife uh, with understanding according to knowledge and giving honor and respect to your wife. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded of uh, the importance that you place on our relationships in the home and that those are to exhibit and be a testimony of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, that we are to be a visible testimony to not only people around us but also to the angels and that our testimony of our relationship in our homes will have an eternal impact father we pray that you challenge us with the truths of these passages we've studied the last few weeks in christ's name amen